0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good
1: morning, I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Appreciate you being here this morning. Uh, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at the subject of spiritual gifts. This is a controversial issue. I know that. Uh, I'm just asking that you examine the scriptures, at least listen to what I'm saying, and then go to the Bible and see if if it lines up with scripture. Um, I've defined spiritual gifts as a God-given capacity through which the Holy Spirit supernaturally ministers to the body. The key here being supernatural, gifts are not natural abilities. They're not talents. They're supernatural. Everybody, Christians, non-Christians, has talents and abilities and things like that. Okay, we're not talking about that. Now, in our last two studies, I've tried to demonstrate that all of the gifts ended at the end of the transition period, at the end of the second exodus, when the Lord returned in AD 70. Now, I probably should have said this in the first two studies, but better late than never. Because I've titled this Preterism and the Gifts, um, I never really defined Preterism. I guess I just get to the point where I think my audience knows, you know, but i got to take into account that there's always new people watching us. Preterism is the eschatology that believes that the second coming of the Lord happened in 8070. We are now living in the new heavens and new earth, which is the new covenant. Obviously, we don't think it was physical. We think it was a spiritual coming to end the Old Covenant, to bring in the New. We are now living in the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is synonymous with the New Heaven and New Earth. All right, so with that out of the way, this morning I'm going to talk about the most controversial, I think, gift of all, and that is speaking in tongues. All right, I'm sure you've heard something about this. Um, Let's look at a couple scriptures here. 1 Corinthians 12.10. To another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. So here Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 10. Then in verse 28, he says that God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So, The gift of tongues only appears in this list in 1 Corinthians. In the other list, there is no mention of this gift. Now we're talking about the list where the gifts are mentioned. And 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest books written. Now, many would tell us that speaking in tongues is something that we are told to seek after. I remember hearing that a lot in my early Christian days. We're to seek after it, we're to pray for it. Speaking in tongues is so popular today, they got a movement named after it, the tongues movement, all right, with many, many churches involved in this. And the importance of the tongues movement, I think, is really magnified by the teaching that connects this with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is very important, very significant, because this is what the tongues movement does. They connect this gift with the baptism. Uh, let me read to you some opening paragraphs of a, of a message preached by Kenneth Miller that I think illustrates this point. He says, Visa, it's everywhere you want to be. Don't leave home without it is a slogan of, popular credit, of a popular credit card. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in Acts 1, 4, and 5, where our Lord commanded his followers not to leave Jerusalem without the promise of the Father. This is clearly a reference to the infilling of the Holy Spirit that Jesus went on to call the baptism of the Spirit in verse 5. Jesus' early followers obeyed. But today, we have many genuine lovers of the Lord Jesus who leave home constantly and venture out without the promise of the Father. So I guess he's saying that people go out without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's trying to say here. And as always, in the case when we disobey, so see, if you go out without the Holy Spirit, you're disobeying. That's what he's trying to tell you. The Lord, they miss out on the best he has for them. It is my intention with this study to set forth a simple and reasoned approach to the subject of speaking in tongues. And since, the book, and since in the book of Acts, we see that when the Holy Spirit is said to fill or baptize or to be received or poured out on or fall upon, we also see that these ones spoke in tongues. Okay, so he is saying that they're connecting the baptism with tongue speaking. That's very significant. Most of these churches will do this. This is a very common... It's a very common wrong teaching. <laughs> okay? It's wrong. Okay? And I'll show you that in a minute. But it, All right, Kenneth Hagin, anybody heard of him from Tulsa, Oklahoma? big in this movement, he says speaking in tongues is always manifested when people are baptized in the Spirit. Okay, hang on to that. So if you're baptized in the Spirit, he said you're going to speak in tongues. Donald G. says this, the distinctive doctrine of Pentecostal churches is that speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's true. Now let me ask you a question, believers. When does the baptism of the Holy Spirit take place in the life of a believer? At salvation, okay? So you really can't be a believer and go out without the Holy Spirit, all right? That that just doesn't happen. Let's look at a few texts here. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jew and Greek, slave and free, all were made to drink of the same Spirit. So all believers have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says we were all baptized. The baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place at salvation. It's something that all believers have in common. You can't be a Christian and not have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. It's not a second work that happens down the road sometime when you get really good at your Christian life and God says, oh, they're doing pretty good, let me give them this. No, it's initial happening. Look what Romans said. Paul says in Romans 8 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So Paul writes even to the carnal Corinthians that they had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a non-experiential, positional work of God. It's when He takes you and He places you into the body of Christ. He puts us in Christ. He joins our life with His, and He becomes the source of our existence and strength. We are part of Him. To not have the Spirit is to not be a Christian. All right, But see, they want to take this baptism, and they want to say, when this happens, the evidence is, you'll speak in tongues. Therefore, if you're not speaking in tongues, they're saying, oh, you haven't been baptized. Well, if you haven't been baptized, you're not a Christian. All right? You have to understand that. But they want to make it a second work of grace. So what, what Hagin said here, speaking in tongues is always manifested. That would mean that every believer speaks in tongues. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians, do all speak in tongues? And the implied answer is no. So, I mean, you've got problems with Scripture here. Every believer does not speak in tongues. Now, as we study this subject of speaking in tongues, we find that first of all there's relatively little said in scripture about tongues compared with the tremendous amount of emphasis put on this movement in this movement today it becomes very obvious that there's it's out of proportion to what the scriptures have to say it's interesting to note that there's very little relative emphasis upon tongues in the New Testament the word occurs only once in four only once in all four of the Gospels. There are only three incidences connected with it, referred to in the book of Acts. And in all of Paul's letters, it's only referred to in one letter, and that's in the letter of 1 Corinthians. In many of the other letters to the churches dealing with many other problems and attitudes. Paul never mentions tongues. There's no reference to tongues in any other New Testament writers or the book of Revelation. So you see, it's relatively little emphasis on tongues in the New Testament. Now, what is the biblical meaning of this thing? What is this speaking in tongues? Let's see if we can answer that question by examining the Scriptures. Let's get our answer from the Scriptures. The subject of tongues is found in three books in the Bible. It's found in Mark 16, 17, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, and in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Let's look at Mark. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Okay, you read that and you say, Okay, I believe. What shall be the signs? And my name, they will cast out devils. They will speak with new tongues. So there you go. He says, listen, these signs are going to accompany those who believe. If you believe, you're going to speak in new tongues. And the tongues, people will say, yep, that's what it says. Well, let's read on a little bit further, okay? They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it won't hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, almost all translations of Mark 16, if you look closely, they're going to have brackets around verses 9 through 20. They'll put it in italics. They'll have some sort of footnote that tells you there is some question about whether or not this was originally part of Mark's gospel. The majority of the New Testament scholars believe that verse 9 through 20 are not original. Alright, so we have to take that factor in. Alright? How many of you have believed? Put your hand up. Come on. If you believe, put your hand up. Okay? How many of you want to handle some snakes? Drink any deadly poison? Okay, I'm going to get you one. <laughs> I mean, the text says if they drink deadly poison, it's not going to hurt them, right? What's interesting to me is that these verses are seldom, if ever, expounded from the pulpit. You ever heard a message on these verses? Go out and grab some snakes. Go out in, you know, West Virginia. You might hear something like this. Okay, (laughs) these verses seem to say that. I mean, when you read it, it sounds like okay. These signs are in a company. Everybody who believes the gospel. They're going to be able to do this. Unfortunately, the text makes it sound that way. And the passage has been that understood that way by many people. So basically it's saying, as you go about preaching the gospel, these signs will immediately confirm that the faith of those who believe is genuine. They'll speak in tongues. They'll pick up snakes. They'll drink poison. The amazing fact is that for 20 centuries, millions of people have been converted. They have believed the gospel and none of these signs Have come from them. These things are to me strong reason to reject these last verses as not part of the original. Like I said, textual scholars will tell us that these these are not part of the scripture. You know, there's no other text in scripture that promises you can handle snakes or drink deadly poison without repercussions. Back in 2012, Mark Wolford, who was 44 years old at the time, he was a West Virginia preacher. This is Mark. He's uh, handling here a timber rattlesnake during a service at the Church uh, of the Lord Jesus in Jolo, West Virginia. Now, this would be part of their normal services. He would handle snakes to prove his faith in God. Well, he died after being bitten during outdoor service involving these reptiles. He died after witnesses say a timber rattler bit him on the thigh. I guess he just wasn't paying attention. Here's the really strange thing. He had seen his father die of a snake bite when he was a teenager because his dad was in this, you know, this same teaching. So Walford and his followers, they have a literal belief in Mark 16:17, camping on these couple verses here, and it took his life. How sad to give his life because of misunderstanding a scripture. I mean, you know, but he feels that this is a sign. This is evidence of your faith. So what happens when they die? All right, so let's take Mark out of the equation. All right? We're not going to be handling snakes or drinking poison. All right? Yes. This leaves two books of the Bible that mention tongues. Now, when we read in Acts 10 or in Acts 19 or in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and we read the word tongues, we don't have a description in those passages of what tongues is. It just mentions it. So we need to go somewhere else in the Bible, if we can, to find a description or a definition or a synonym which will define the meaning of this. Or we can develop a meaning on tongues based on what we hear others say. And that seems to be the norm today. If someone tells you this is what tongues is and people believe it, instead of going to the Scriptures and saying, where does it say that? How do we define that? There's three predominant views today on what tongues are. First of all, they are a known human language. That's one view. Second view, they are ecstatic speech, unknown angelic language, a private prayer language. Those all kind of fit together because it's not a language. It's just ecstatic speech. It's noise, but it's private prayer. It's angel talk, whatever. All right. And then the third view would be it can be either of the first two. It can be a known language or it can be ecstatic speech. Here's the question. What does the scripture say? That's really what's important. And we have a description of tongues in the first occurrence in Acts 2, which seems to be a logical place to describe the gift. I mean, the first mention of it. So let's go to Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And that's where they get this whole emphasis from, all right? They were filled in the Spirit, they spoke in tongues, so they say, everybody should do that. Well, this is Pentecost. This is the coming of the Spirit. This is the beginning of the church. This is a little different than, this is not the norm in church history, all right? They'll speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, the multitude came together. They heard all this. They're coming. What's all this noise? They were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So verse 3 says, The divided tongues as of fire appeared on each of them. Now, throughout the Scriptures, fire is always a sign of God's presence among His people. But here the difference at Pentecost, the manifestation of the flaming presence of God, is not positioned over the tent of the tabernacle. It's not positioned over the temple. It's positioned over the people. Because they are the new tabernacle. They are the new dwelling place of God. God is descending on fire on His new temple of His people by the Spirit. This is the promise of the new covenant. Verse 4 says, And they began to speak with other tongues. Now, the Greek word that is translated tongues here is glossa. Glossa, I mean, glossa. All right? Glossa refers to the organ in your mouth, tongue, or the use of that organ, a language. The Greek word for other here is heteros, and it means another of a different kind. So we could translate this, they spoke with different languages. That's what's happening here at Pentecost. In verses 4 and 11, we have the term glosa, and in verse 9 and 11, we have the clear explanation of what glosa is. He says, and how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then he lists all the languages. Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling us our own tongues, the mighty works of God. We see from these verses that tongues was a known human language. Look at Acts 2.6. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 8 says, how is it that we hear each in his own native language? Now, verses 6 and 8 use the Greek word here, dialectos, translated here as languages. Dialectos is the language or dialect of a country or district. It can be more specific than the general language and refers to inflection and tone. So on the day of Pentecost, the people heard not only their own language, but more technically, their own dialect. All right, it's very specific. Now, in verses 9 through 11 of Acts 2, we see here, Luke is listing 16 different nations are there. They're all in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. That's what brought them there. We got these 16 nations. What is significance about this? Why list all these? Luke is telling us that this is the start of the second exodus that was predicted by the prophets. Because if we go back to Isaiah 11, 11 and 12 says, In that day, the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant, the remains of His people from Assyria from Egypt, from Pathos, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from all four corners of the earth. These nations listed here are the same that are listed in our text in Acts 2. And by naming all these nations, Luke is telling us that Pentecost is the beginning of the second exodus. God is for a second time recovering His people from bondage. Not from Egypt this time, this time from the bondage of sin and death. At Pentecost, Yahweh began to reclaim the nations that He had disherited at Babel. Now, if you look at Luke 10.1, He says this, Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of Him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Luke viewed the gospel as God's plan for reclaiming the nations that God had disinherited at Babel. And the number of disciples here in Luke 10:1 was meant to match the number of the nations in Genesis 10 that was disinherited if you read genesis 10 the table of nations we have 70 nations so here's 70 are being sent out it's telling us he is reclaiming the nations that were disinherited at babel okay back to acts both glosa and dialectos refer to language known human language you with me so far okay So from Acts 2, we have a clear explanation of what tongues was. It was a language spoke by people. They're hearing this from people who didn't know this language previously. Verse 11 tells us they began to speak languages which they had never heard. He said, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own glossa the mighty works of God. So they, be, they didn't know these languages before. They hadn't learned them. And they're preaching the wonderful works of God. This was the ability, the supernatural ability, to communicate in a language not previously learned. So biblically, the gift of tongues is the ability to speak in a language that you have never learned. It's not uttering some ecstatic utterance, which makes no sense. It's not gibberish. It's not jargon. It is a known language that is spoken somewhere on earth and can be reduced to writing. It's a known language. That's the point. Now, if you read the account in Acts 2, there's no question about this because there's 16 languages mentioned there. And the people who spoke these languages were present. They heard these men speaking in their language as the spirit gave them utterance. And they said to each other, how is this happening? I mean, these men are Galileans. I mean, they know by the way they're dressing. These are ignorant fishermen. How is it that that we're hearing them speak in our own language? Then the Spirit of God lists the languages. There's 16 of them from different parts of the earth. This was during a time, again, the Feast of Pentecost. They're all there. They came from their lands to celebrate. So there's thousands of strangers in Jerusalem at that time. And they're hearing these languages. The amazing thing to me is that the people today who claim to have this gift of tongues when preaching to a foreign audience use an interpreter. And I've always been, when I was involved in the charismatic movement, this confused me then. I'm like, you say you have the gift and yet you're speaking to this audience and you're using an interpreter. Why would you do that? Just talk to them in their language. Does that make sense? You know, it's okay as a Christian to think, right? Yeah. It is okay. I mean, we're allowed to think. And some people think that's wrong, and that you're just supposed to be all emotional about everything. No, God wants us to use our brains. Okay, that's why He gave them to us. All right. Now, if the Bible explains something, I think we should be very careful to put a different explanation on what is obviously the same thing the Bible explains. All the uses of tongues in the New Testament, glosa, there's 50 of them, they either refer to the physical organ in your mouth or to the use of that organ in speaking known human languages. All right? That's all there is. He says here various kinds of tongues. The word various is the Greek word genos, which means a family, a group, or a race, or a nation. Now, linguistics use the term language families. You ever heard that? Language families. So the reference is to different kinds of languages. Now, let me ask you this. Are there families of gibberish, of ecstatic speech? I don't think so. Now, the word interpretation here is the Greek word hermeneia, which means to translate. So what this is, is you take something in one language and you put it into its equivalent in another language. So if someone had the gift of tongues, someone had the gift to interpret that for people who didn't speak that language. You can't translate stuff that's not a language. All right? Now, since the word glosa is the same word used in Acts as is used here. This is glosa. He's talking about the gift of tongues. And we saw in Acts, it's a known human language. That would make sense that he's talking about the same thing here. There's no reason to think this is something different. The gibberish and ecstatic utterance that we're seeing today is not biblical tongues. Now, I know someone is going to say, well, it's angel talk. You've heard that, right? It's angel talk. They get that from 1 Corinthians 13.1. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels... But have not love, I'm a noisy, gong, or clanging cymbal. So here we have angel talk, right? And some say, that's what this is a reference to. The tongues of angels. It's different. It's something else. Well, let me tell you this. Let me give you a little challenge here. Go through the Scriptures and find every time an angel talks, and guess what he talked in? A known human language. Because the people who they were talking to understood them. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah's is in the throne room of God. It says, Then one of the seraphim, an angel, high-ranking angel, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, No, he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. He spoke in a language that Isaiah understood. I guess it was Hebrew. Okay? So he spoke a known human language. If you look at Acts 1.11, Acts 128, Acts 24.4, angels always speak in a human tongue. Remember when Paul was being transported to Rome on the ship and an angel appeared to him? He spoke in Hebrew and Paul said, Oh, I get that. I know exactly what this angel is saying. There was no something different, you know? Now, do angels talk to themselves in some kind of angel talk? I don't know. <laughs> But I know every time in the Bible when they speak, they speak a known human language. Now, here's the deal. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, Paul is using hyperbole. He is exaggerating his point and saying, even if I could do these things, it wouldn't matter if I don't have love. He's just stressing the importance of love. So, biblically, what are tongues? Well, biblically defined, tongues was the supernatural ability To speak in a language, a known human language, you had never learned. All right. Now that we understand the biblical meaning of tongues, that's what it is, not gibberish, not angel talk, let's see if we can discover what was the purpose of this. Why was it happening? What's the purpose of tongues? What's the purpose of this known human language? Was it so we could preach the gospel to foreigners? We just saw that. That's what happened in Acts But that's not the primary meaning of use of this thing, all right? Look at me at 1 Corinthians 14. Paul tells us here, and he really gives us the only direct statement regarding the specific purpose for tongues. He says, in the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to these people. And even then, they'll not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign. Not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign for unbelievers, not for unbelievers, but for believers. So tongues, he says, was to be a sign for unbelievers. So if anyone thinks he has the gift of tongues today, he needs to deal with the reality of that statement. And I think he'll be forced to reconsider just what it is he does have. This is the primary purpose of the gift of tongues. Verse 21 here is quoting Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. And in verse 22, Paul is applying it to the time of the Corinthians and telling them that if tongues were a sign in the time of Isaiah, they were still a sign. Tongues are not for believing people. They're for unbelieving. In verse 21, this people here refers to Israel. Tongues was specifically a sign for unbelieving Israel. Isaiah 28 is a warning of judgment. And verse 21 refers to the Assyrians, which the people would hear if they rejected Isaiah's message. Look at Isaiah 28:11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, Yahweh will speak to this people, Israel. And here he's talking about the Assyrian tongue was a sign of judgment to the generation of Israelites who were rejecting, rejecting the word of God. So Paul explained that tongues was a sign of coming judgment for rejecting Yeshua, the Messiah, and the gospel of grace. He says, you will hear sign, you, this sign of an unknown tongue, a sign of judgment. Moses gave the following warning in Deuteronomy. Yahweh will bring a nation against you, again, talking to Israel, from afar, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. Again, they're hearing this foreign language. In Jeremiah, Yahweh says this, behold, I am bringing against you, again, speaking to Israel, a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. In the Old Covenant, Yahweh had clearly pointed out to the people of Israel that when they were going to be judged, they would have a sign. And that sign was that they would hear a language that they couldn't understand. And when they are at Pentecost and they began to hear these languages on the day of Pentecost, every Jew who knew the Scriptures would have had to recognize this as a sign of judgment we're hearing this unknown tongue it's a sign of judgment judgment is eminent look at acts 2 12 through 16 and we're all amazed and perplexed saying to one another they're hearing these tongues they say what does this mean but others mocking said they're filled with new wine but peter standing standing With the eleven lifted his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter says, we're not drunk. What you're seeing is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And then Peter quotes from Joel And in the last days, okay, that's when this is going to happen. It shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now the term last days, Describes the period of time between the birth of Christ. Most people have no problem with identifying the beginning of the last days. Most everybody has a problem identifying the end of the last days. Because to most churches, most preachers, they're still in the last days. Which means the last days have lasted for over 2,000 years. Now if you read scripture, you should understand that the last days are the last days of Israel... Israel at this time had only been in existence about 1,600 years. So how did their last days exist way longer than their whole initial existence? Last days are usually a shorter period because it's the end time. It's the last days. Listen, this is the last days, not of the church. The church has no last days. The church has an everlasting covenant. This is the last days of Israel, the old covenant. And this is the destruction of Jerusalem. The last days of the house of Israel. That's what we have to understand. And that's what Joel's prophecy is a fulfillment of. They were here, he says, the last days are upon us. Judgment is coming. Now the term all flesh here refers to Jew and Gentile. Israel was being judged and the gospel was being taken to the Gentiles. That's what Paul says in Romans 11. 11. Then he says this, and people get confused here. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs in the earth below. Now, we just read about the beginning of the last days, right? Now, this is still talking about the last days, but this is the ending of the last days. This is the covering of 40-year period. I'm going to show wonders in the heavens, signs in the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. And most people see that, the day of the Lord, okay, this is the end of the the earth. He says, Great and magnificent day, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, most people read this and they say, this is speaking of a future judgment to us where the whole world is going to be destroyed. It sounds like that, doesn't it? If you read this and you're not familiar with the first three quarters of the Bible then you'll get confused. But if you are familiar with the first three quarters of the Bible, they got this language. It was used all through the prophets. Let's go back to Isaiah thirteen nine ten. 10. Isaiah uses the same language. Behold the day of the Lord. There we go again. The day of Yahweh. It comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger. This is a day of judgment. You can pick that up from the language. To make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Now watch what he says. The stars of the heavens and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Well, that sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? But you know what this is talking about? This is talking about the fall of the nation Babylon, and it's falling to the Medes. The Medes destroyed Babylon. These events did not literally take place, but if you are a Babylonian, guess what? The lights went out. Your world ended because the Medes conquered them and destroyed it. So this is figurative language predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of a nation. Here it's talking about Babylon. In our text in Acts, it's talking about Jerusalem. The light of Israel was distinguished. The old covenant era was through. And it's, again, we, just, we have to take the language from the New Testament and find out what it means from examining the first three quarters of the Bible. Tongues was primarily a sign of judgment to unbelieving Jews. All right? We have to understand that. Secondly, when tongues were interpreted, they would edify believers. All right? It's a sign for unbelievers, but if you interpret them, believers can be edified. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, 26-28. What then, brothers... Talking to the Corinthians here, you know, this is a bunch of messed up group here, okay? If you could do it wrong, they were doing it wrong. When you come together, this is come. they're coming together to worship, each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. He says, let all things be done for building up. So, you come there, you got a tongue, well, it's got to be used to build up. Now, if anyone, he says, speaks in a tongue... Let there only be two or three at the most. So if you go to a place and you know I've been to these places where people are standing up and speaking in tongues, and then you know someone else stands up and I'm like, okay, how many go? Because the rule is you gotta only have three. And then look. Three or two three or two at the most, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each one. Keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. If there's no inter- so that tells me they knew who the interpreters were, right? Oh, no, I'm going to speak in tongues. I got to make. I got to look around, make sure this is at the assembly of this. Is, you know, the Christians who are coming together. So, verse 20, 27 28 tell us that tongues uninterpreted don't edify. Therefore, if there's no interpretation. There's to be no tongues. Are these the same tongues as in Acts two? Well, again, glosa is always use of a tongue or languages. To use the word glosa and mean ecstatic speech would be to confuse the whole issue, I think. Now, you got a lot of these people that will argue and they say, "Well, what about tongues? Tongue, if my, I speak in tongues it's a private prayer language. Have you heard that? Now use 1 Corinthians 14:2: "The one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God." See, it says he's speaking to God, so they're, they're saying, see, it's a private prayer language. No, Paul is not praising them here. He's saying, listen, only God can understand you, what you're saying. Nobody understands that. To men, it's a mystery because it's uninterpreted. The biblical gift of tongues never occurs in private. Like all the gifts of the Spirit, it was designed for the common good. It's a public gift. Every utterance, every appearance of it is there's other people present. This is not something private. The gifts were to build up the body. It's not a private gift. It's not experienced anywhere in the New Testament in private. Now, if you were to examine every prayer prayed in the Bible, and you were to study every passage in the Bible which taught about prayer, you would not find one thing anywhere, anytime, that even suggests that prayer should be unintelligible. Does that make any sense? If it's unintelligible, you don't understand it either, right? As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches when you pray, it needs to be intelligible. Let me show you a text, Matthew 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen of others. You know, they want everybody looking at them. Look at me, I'm praying. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think they're going to be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. I like Peter when he's drowning. He's sinking in the water. You know, he, oh, thou magnificent Father, we thank thee. You know, he said, Lord, save me. Boom. That's to the point, right? Okay, what happened? God saved him. All right. Now, here's what I want you to focus on the words here, empty phrases here, is the Greek word batalageo. You got that? It's going to be a test on this, so I want you to get it batalageo. It comes from legeo, which means to speak. And bata, now, bata is a figure of speech which in English we call an automatopoeia. Anybody remember from school what an automatopoeia is? What is it? <laughs> you said yes. An automatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it says, like buzz, zing, zip, pow, you know, that's an automatopoeia. So what, what Yeshua is literally saying is here, When you pray, don't say bata, 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 (laughs) bata. Okay? The gibberish that the pagans offer to their gods. The pagans would do this. The Lord's saying, no, don't do that. When you pray, (laughs) use intelligible speech, okay? So you understand. God knows what you're praying. All right, let me say this here. What is prayer? First of all, you know, we get in this, people want to argue about private prayer language. Here's my definition of prayer. Prayer is a declaration of dependence. To me, that's the simplest, most concise definition of prayer there is. When you pray, you are saying, God, I need you. That's why you're praying to Him, right? You're either asking Him for things or you're thanking Him for things because He's already given them to you, but you're recognizing, I'm dependent on you, God. And in the same way, prayerlessness is a declaration of self-sufficiency, So when you pray, when you don't pray, you're saying, God, I don't need you. I got this. How many times do we do that? I don't need you. God, just watch. I'll take care of this. I got this one myself. No, prayer is a declaration of dependence. And man, we are dependent on God, whether we realize it or not. So we should always be praying that I'm dependent upon you. Need you help me. Listen, you don't pray in gibberish because if you do, you have no idea what you're saying to God. It's just noise. 1 Corinthians 14.22 says tongues are a sign, not a private prayer language. So we've seen the meaning of tongues. It was a known human language. We've seen the purpose of tongues. It's a sign of judgment. Now let's deal with the duration of tongues. How long does it last? Well, our text tells us in 1 Corinthians 13.8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And I know people want to argue, we still have knowledge, so we still have tongues. This is not talking about just knowledge in general, okay? Knowledge passed away from the government, there's no question about that, all right? But this is the gift of knowledge, the gift of understanding things that wouldn't be known otherwise, all right? That's a special gift. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial we've done away. Now, hopefully in the last two messages on this subject, I've demonstrated that all the gifts ended in the first century. Based on Paul's words in this passage, the only question as to whether or not the gift of tongues exists today, as it did in Bible t- times, is a matter of timing, all right? He says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Has the perfect come? If it has, then tongues have ceased. But if the perfect has not come yet, then tongues have not ceased, and God has meant for tongues to continue throughout the centuries as a normal practice in the church up to our present day. But I believe the perfect here has come because the perfect refers to the maturity of the body of Christ, which happened at the second coming of Christ in A.D. 70, bringing in the destruction of the old covenant in Israel, ushering in the new heavens and new earth, which closed the canon. All those things. We talked about that last time. They're all connect. they all connected. Tongues are a sign of judgment. Once judgment fell on Israel, the gift would have no significance at all. And judgment fell on Israel in A.D. 70. The temple was destroyed. The sacrifices came to an end. They have never since offered sacrifices. When they got back into the land, after the Babylonian captivity, you know, when Ezra issued a decree or... King Cyrus issued a decree and said, you can go back to Israel. When they got back there, one of the first things they did was to begin to sacrifice again. Because that's, that's the religion. That's the, how they worship God. Well, since AD 70, they've never sacrificed an animal. It's done. It's over. It's finished. Now, history records. Let's, let's think about history for a minute here. All right, History records that the gift of tongues ceased in the apostolic age. Now, as a young Christian, I was trying to understand this gift of tongues. I studied the history of the church in regards to prayer and tongues, and I found that the first revival of tongues within the confines of the evangelical church of Yeshua since the apostolic age was in 1901 at a Zuzu Street Mission in no other place but California. If it's weird, it starts there, okay? Then it drifts across the coast, all right? So my question was, where had it been for 1,800 years? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says that tongues will cease. It never says they'll cease and then they'll start up again. The post-apostolic fathers discuss the gift of tongues. They don't discuss the gift of tongues. They never talk about tongues. It's nowhere found in any of their writings. Clement of Rome, he wrote a letter to the Corinthians in A.D. 95, discussing all of their spiritual problems, and he didn't even mention tongues. I think these things are significant. We've got to pay some attention to this. Justin Martyr, who lived from A.D. 100 to 165, He wrote much, but he never mentioned tongues. He even made a list of spiritual gifts, but they didn't include tongues. Origen, who lived from AD 185 to 253, in his Apologetic Against Celsius, explicitly argued that the signs of the apostolic age were temporary and that no contemporary Christian exercised any of the ancient gifts. Chrysostom. A.D. 347-407 to 407, in his homilies on 1 Corinthians, he comments on chapter 12. He says this, This whole place is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation, being such as they used to occur but now no longer take place. He says, We don't, we don't know what these things are because we don't see them. Augustine who lived from 354 to 430, he comments on Acts 2.4. He says this, In the earliest times, the Holy Spirit fell upon them that believed, and they spoke with tongues. These were signs adapted to the time for their behoove to be that beckoning, and it passed away. So the greatest theologians of the ancient church considered the gift of tongues to be a remote practice. Now to be fair, there were some supposed occurrences of tongues since the apostolic age by a man named Montanus from Phrygia. Now Montanus had two female priestesses, Prisca and Maximilla, and they are said to spoke in ecstatic ecstatic utterances, which really wouldn't be the biblical gift of tongues anyway. But Montanus also claimed to be the Holy Spirit, and he was thrown out of the church as a heretic. So not a good example to use Montanus, okay? Okay. After Montanus, the next eruption of ecstatic speech wasn't until the 17th century. And again, not a known language. Now, if what I have said thus far is true, then you might be asking, well, how do we explain what's happening today? Right? I mean, there's people doing this, right? There's people, you go to some of these meetings and you see the, wow. You know, we, we when I was stationed in Memphis, Tennessee, my brother came to visit. He was on his way back from Florida, and he found Kathy's sister in Florida and brought to her with him and another friend. And so they were all at her house. So I just heard about this church called the Rose of Sharon in the hills of Tennessee. All right, so we go to this church. And I'm telling you, I was like, holy mackerel. This is scaring me to death, okay? And, you know, the non-save people that were there, they were loving They thought, this is really cool. What's all this stuff? About? I mean, they got... Demons coming out of people and speaking in all these languages and all this crazy stuff going on. So it was quite an experience. But uh, so what's happening with this? What is this about? Well, first of all, it's not biblical tongues. Okay, biblical tongues was a known human language. It was spoken as a sign to the generation that lived in the last days of judgment. Now, please understand that this. I am not questioning the experience of those who say they speak in tongues. All right, because every experience that you experience is genuine to you, right? It's your experience. I can't argue with that. I can't say you didn't have that. That didn't happen. But the test of what is biblical is not experience. But scripture, the word of God. So it's no good for someone to say this happened to me and therefore I know it must be of the Lord. That's not true. It may be valid. It may be true. Facts are always facts. And you don't need to deny what someone says happened to them. However, what happened is one thing. The explanation is another thing. I wouldn't question their experience. and One of the reasons I wouldn't is because I've had the experience. Okay? But I would question if their experience was the biblical gift of tongues. Now, if it's not biblical tongues, what is it? What's happening? Here's my understanding. Personally, I believe that the so-called tongue speaking that goes on in Christianity today can be explained as learned behavior. People, I think you're all aware of how powerful peer pressure is, right? Are you aware of that? You know that it even works with animals? I mean seriously, my dog would not drink water out of a hose if he's dying of thirst, but when the neighbor's dog's over and he's drinking out of the hose, my dog does it. <laughs> I'm serious. Several other things he won't do, but if we with the neighbor's dog, the first time I got I couldn't get him. In, my dog hates the water. We're out there on the beach one day, and this lab jumps in the water and starts swimming. And my dog looks at me, and, pff, followed him out there in the water. Peer pressure. Well, among people, it's very powerful, very powerful. And it's not biblical tongues is is not a miracle. It's not a supernatural experience. These things that people are going on today with, it's not a spiritual gift. The mind is a very powerful thing. And listen, if you're associating with others, you're at a church that speaks in tongues. You're associating with other Christians that speak in tongues. And you think they're spiritual. They love God. They're good people. I must be missing something, right? And so you begin to wonder, should I be doing this? I mean, they seem to be great people. I feel like I might be missing something. Do you know that Rock Church has classes that will teach you how to speak in tongues. Pat Robertson will teach you how to speak in tongues. Pat Robertson says you just need to learn to do it. What you do is, he said, you do la, 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 ba, 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 da, da, da. You just do that over and over and pretty soon you'll be speaking in tongues. No, it doesn't... um, It's just... How many of you ever heard of pseudocyesis? Anybody know what that is? You're going to know today, all right. I want you to get... This is a, this is a condition, all right. This is called false pregnancy. Clinical term is pseudocyesis. It's the belief, that, the belief that you're expecting a baby when you're not really expecting a baby. Now listen to this. People with pseudocyesis can manifest some or all of the symptoms of pregnancy. A cessation of menstruation, morning sickness, cravings, swelling of the abdomen, enlargement of the breasts, but there is no baby. They tell us that the most common cause of pseudocyesis is that a woman has such an intense desire to be pregnant that she convinces herself that she is. Now, here's what I'm trying to tell you, people. The mind is a powerful thing, okay? And if you think, if, if it can make a woman have all the symptoms of pregnancy, what can your mind do in this area of tongues if you believe this is the right thing to do? These people I'm with, they, they're They're godly people. They speak in tongues. They say I should have it. They say I should pray for it. My friends do it. I want to do it. This happened to me. I was a counselor at CBN right over here. I went in in the evenings and I would volunteer to help out with counseling. All right. We basically answer phones Uh, when we weren't begging for money. I I did some telethons, but when we're just answering phones, we would pray for people. You know, they call in, they tell us, here's your prayer. Okay, we pray for them. Well, I'm waiting for a call, and I hear the guy in the thing next to me who's a friend of mine. He's an older gentleman that basically was discipling me. And he told the person on the phone, well, that's what you really need to learn to speak in tongues. And I was like, learn? I thought it was a spiritual gift. So I waited until we got done with our shift, and I said, you're telling the people that you have to learn? How do you learn to do this? It's a spiritual gift. Oh, no, no. He said, "You, you can learn to do this. And so a group of them took me to the prayer room at CBN. This is the Holy of Holies, okay, at CBN. And they laid hands on me, and they began praying for me, and they're all going in gibberish and gibberish. And, and all of a sudden, I start doing gibberish. I'm come on. You know, and I'm just, you know, she bought Okay, I'm going on, all right? And let me tell you something, people, to me, that was a real experience. That was a genuine experience. I swear, I could have left my car in the parking lot at CBN and flown home. That's how high I was. And this happened for a while, and we got home, and I tried to tell my, my wife's like, back off, Jack. <laughs> if that's from God, God will give it to me, okay? But, you know, I mean, I was, I went on like that for a while. And then, I did a, a study in church history, and again, as I'm digging through and reading and reading about the prayers of the people and, and I just, I came, I, I literally studied myself out of it because the Bible didn't line up with it. The church history didn't line up with it. So I quit. I quit. I can do it when I want, but, but. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the thing. If it's a prayer language, do I need to say things so God hears me? God knows my every thought before I think it. I don't need to say anything because, you know, the charismatics will tell you, well, it's a private prayer language so the devil doesn't understand what you're saying. And I'm like, I don't need that to say a word. I can just think and God knows everything that's going on in my head so why do I need this ecstatic gibberish? I don't. Okay? But I'll tell you, there is this feeling of I've arrived. I did it. You know? I mean, because that's what they're teaching. Now... (laughs) It's important, and please get this. I believe that speaking in ecstatic tongues is not the biblical gift of tongues. I believe tongues is a known human language. But, if those who have trusted the Lord Christ for their salvation, they are our brothers and sisters whether they speak in tongues or not. And that means we're still to love them. We're not to, you know, take our knowledge and bang them over the head. So you're an idiot. You can't be doing that. No, we try to educate them, try to share the word of God with them. But that's our calling. We need, to, we need to serve one another in love. There's too many divisions in the body of Christ already. Well, we can work together. We need to work together. All right? If you do this in your closet at home, I could care less. Okay? Because it doesn't affect me. All right? Now, you start doing it in church, we're going to have a problem here. Okay? We're going to lay hands on you. <laughs> all right so what's the gift of tongues <clears throat> tongues was a known human language biblically all right i just you know you come to me and you show me how it's anything but a known human language all right the primary purpose of tongues was a sign of god's judgment on the nation israel he promised them they would see it they saw it that's what paul says in 1 corinthians all right Tongues ceased when God's judgment fell on old covenant Israel. And let me just add here, people that first Corinthians 14 talks about the women being silent. Okay. Because this movement, I think if you stop the women from this movement, it would probably go away quickly. All right. Now that's not a slam on any women. I'm just telling you that, you know, when I've been at other churches where they're speaking in tongues, it's always the women doing it. All right. I don't know why that is. Just a statement of fact. Okay? <laughs> so, again, this is a cause of huge division in the church. you got the tongue speakers and the non-tongue speakers. We don't need to cause any more division. Like I said, we can love them. We can disagree with them. But we have to stick to Scripture. This is what the Scriptures say. And, and I'm asking you not to believe what I said. That go back. Look through some of the texts I've given you. Study the Scriptures. See if this is so. Don't buy it because I said it. Study it for yourself. Get a heartfelt conviction of your own on what this is about. But, you know, again, in my mind, as someone who did this in the past, it made me feel spiritual because of the people I was hanging with. They were doing it. I could do it. We were all good. All right. Later, I realized I didn't need this. And, you know, I draw near to God, not by some ecstatic speech. It's just by desiring to live and walk in holiness. You know, with my Lord, to abide in Christ, as we learn from 1 John, we're to abide in him. John didn't say anything about you need some ecstatic speech to abide. We just need to walk in fellowship with our God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your love for us. Lord, it must amuse you at times, all the things that go on in your church. It must also sadden you and sicken you at times. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom. Give us a heart of brilliance, Father. I pray that above everything else, we would simply want to honor and please you with all we believe, with all we do. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Thank you for your patience with us. Amen. Questions? Glenn.
2: When you finally experienced speaking in tongues, did you also connect that with the Now I'm finally
1: been baptized in the Spirit or not. I don't yeah, that's a good question, but I don't remember. Did everyone hear the question? Yes, the question was when I find when I began to do this ecstatic speech, did I connect that with the baptism of the Spirit? I don't remember. I mean I was very young Christian, I don't know that I even understood all that then and I don't remember them making a big deal about that. At least it doesn't stand out in my mind, you know, the baptism. But that is definitely a connection in these churches. Those two are connected.
2: When I spoke in tongues as a young man, I felt like, again, in the background I had and and the company I kept, I felt like that I had finally received the baptism of the Holy Ghost because at Pentecost they spake in tongues. Right, exactly. And at Caesarea they spake in tongues. And and, um, so... For many years I held out that you didn't have the spirit of these spoken tongues. I later gave that up, certainly. But um, um, I just wondered if you felt like you and there was I when I finally spoke nothing, I felt like I was finally saved. And, uh, the Bible says if you don't have any spirit, you're not his. Well, now I finally got
1: it. Yeah, and you were were you a preacher at that time or no? No, this before you. Yeah,
2: I, I may have preached, some okay, as a teenager, but not you
1: know. So you were an unsaved preacher. Finally I, got it. Finally I, got it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Again, people,
2: most, most of my church never spoke in tongues, and I always held it out to them as needing to, because that's a sign you have received the Spirit. And when I finally saw the light and preached a sermon one Sunday morning called The Simplicity of the Gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and even Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized in the water of the of Jesus, and ye shall receive. Right. No questions about it. And I freed the people from that burden. We had a revival for six months. Amen. Yeah.
1: The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And see, people, this is this is one of the teachings of this movement the, the baptism of the Spirit they view it as a second work of grace. Some of them, some of them believe you're not even saved until you get that, which you're not if you don't have the baptism of the Spirit. But they connect it with tongues, and those two go together. So if you don't speak in tongues, that's the evidence you haven't been baptized. And the, the faith is doesn't really play in there that much, you know. But again, I don't remember them teaching this is the baptism, I just remember that I felt I was spiritual now. Because I had what the spiritual people had. And, you know, we were in this little group that were spiritual, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, my wife, she has just been patient through a lot of different moves. Okay?
2: Well, there's always a real problem with me and my church. Some of my most wholesome Christians, the folks closest to the Lord, the most dedicated people. you never spoke in tongues. Right. Here I was saying you're still lost. It was a great
1: conflict. Right. Yeah.
2: Trouble in my heart. And that
1: conflict goes yeah. on today, man. There's people out there that are struggling in those churches feeling like I just don't have it, you know. And I, Again, that's why the Rock Church has a class to teach you how to do it.
2: And that was always so, I mean, it's, if God's going to do it, how are you going to teach somebody to do it? I, I, I know. That's
1: where I was at. I'm like, how do you teach a spiritual gift, you know? Can, I'd rather... Teach me healing. I'd rather have that one. Yeah, okay. well, like the other
2: <laughs> and there are churches today that are anticipating the restoration of these gifts, and they, they're just waiting, waiting, waiting until somebody can have the gift of healing and pick and six folks and, and all those things, but you don't see it. That, I mean, if the gifts are for today and somebody has, has them, then let's see some words.
1: Exactly. Let's see it. You know, not not healing someone of post nasal drip. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want to see an arm put back on. I want to see someone who's <laughs> never walked for 38 years jump up and walking and leaping and praising God. Okay. Biblical I, healings. I remember when I was
0: driving for North Christian me, uh, driving a little school bus for little kids, and one of them, I'm not sure if it was a teacher or just somebody that I knew,
1: uh, after I dropped the kids off, she comes on my bus and lovely person, and was very, in her heart,
0: you know, she was very sincere, but she wanted to know if I had the gift
1: of the Spirit, and and, and I said, well, I, I believe I'm a believer, so I believe I have the Holy Spirit. Oh, but do you speak in tongues? And so I remember as a young Christian walking away from that thinking, maybe I'm not a believer. But so it can be damaging to some people. But Yeah, I think it definitely can be damaging. Hold on a minute, Gary. I, I got a question here. It says, You mentioned I know languages ceased in eighty seventy, but could that have been a one time event in Acts? Are these scriptures that these unknown languages continue until AD 70? Are there scriptures that.? Well, no, but it happened in the church. That's why Paul's writing and he's giving regulations on how to do this. You know, make sure there's an interpreter, two or three at the most. And Paul's giving, in Corinthians, the only place to really dealing with it, regulations on, on what they're supposed to do. We don't know when it faded out exactly. I think it faded out before AD 70. Because you just don't see about, you know, Corinthians was one of the earliest writings. Later, you just don't see or hear anything about it. Uh, Someone else says, don't you think the Pentecost miracle of tongues was in the ears of the hearers? I've heard that, you know, thing, but it says they're speaking in our language, not we're hearing in our language. So that makes me think they're speaking this other language. All right. And was it a sign to the unbelieving of the impending judgment? Yes, I think that was the sign. It was assigned to the Jews who were there at Pentecost because God had spoken to the Jews. He'd always told them about this judgment of unknown language. You're going to hear these unknown languages when you're being judged. So I think that the Jews there, when they heard this, they're like, "Well, we're hearing speaking, you know, the gospel, but this unknown language thing reminds us of what the Lord said." Uh, this is for you, Veronica. Is it possible for Veronica to provide the websites for the article she presented today and the website where the people can report injuries and or deaths? Thank you. Yeah. Yes, we'll get back with you specifically on that. Anybody else that wants it, let me know. Uh, I think that Gary, you had a question?
2: I was just going to say and get this out. The tongue speaking movement it was a curse to my mother. And she didn't have it. She wanted it so bad. And it just about cracked her face.
1: I know that that's the sad thing. See, we're making haves and have nots. The have nots are the people that are just not speaking in this language and so they they don't count. They're not important. <laughs> Jeff?
0: The question that somebody asked about the being in the ears of the hearer made me how I because I brought this up with uh, on the side note just i was wondering because there's two ways and I, and I think in looking at the scripture so you have 16 different just let let's use around number 16 different people here in language. so the question is is one person speaking and 16 people understanding but the verse does say the tongues came upon them and they began speaking in tongues and the people heard their language so we kind of come to the conclusion or maybe the assumption that you've got a bunch of people talking different languages and a bunch of people hearing them and not one person getting up and speaking some alien language that 16 can hear, which would be in the ear because right. then you've got 16 of people understanding one language, but it seems from the text because it wasn't until after that that Peter stood up. because I guess when you just kind of remember from history, you kind of think, Peter stood up, started speaking in tongues and everybody started hearing in their own language, but it seems like all the people were speaking, the commotion, the people came over, and all of a sudden they're all hearing the people say the same thing in different languages.
1: So. And if that's, in fact, the way it went, okay, that you have a bunch of different people, so you're hearing the gospel in your own language, but you're also hearing stuff you don't understand. And so at the same time you're learning, but at the same time it's judgment because you're in all these unknown language, and you're like, this is a sign of judgment.
0: And plus you know that that person didn't know your language to begin beginning, so that's where the miracle came in. Right. And it may also explain why in some cases need an interpreter because maybe the person who's speaking in tongues maybe don't, it doesn't <coughs> understand it by all languages and when they speak it maybe only certain people they're hearing it and not all people because it's only one person speaking one language.
1: It's hard to interpret gibberish.
2: It always bothered me that it, it teaches don't be unless somebody somebody it. Right. And most of the time, you know, there's nothing about that. Right. No.
1: Right. You know, th- there's so much damage can come from misunderstanding, misinterpreting Scripture. You know, like Gary's mom. Can you imagine all your life you're trying to serve God, and you just feel like God's not accepting me, He's not giving me this thing that I need. And,
2: and again, it was back to when I get good enough, right? It'll happen, right? And when I live, when I read enough, when I pray enough, when I do enough good deeds, it's going to happen. And she's done enough because it's happened to her, but you know. Right. What's wrong
1: with me? It was... And we talked about this pastor from West Virginia. You know He dies. watch watched his father die because of his misunderstanding of Scripture. My mother uh, was a single woman. After my dad died, she was a widow. She was going to church. Some, they had some guest speaker come in. And of course, he's preaching on tithing because the preachers paid guests to come in and say it, so that way they don't look so bad. Yeah. And preached on tithing. And he said that if you've missed tithes in the past... You had to make those up, okay? The stuff you missed, God doesn't let that slide, okay? And so my mother was ready to mortgage her home to pay this. And she called me, and I was like, oh, let me get my hands on that preacher, okay? I said, Mom, do not do not worry about it. You give to the Lord. You The New Testament commandment is you give as you've been blessed, okay? You give as you've been blessed. And there's no this, you know... But I tell you, the church has done such a disservice to people through misinterpreting scriptures, done so much damage to people, and turned so many people off that people don't even want to go to church. Why would you? It's just it's the big, sad.
2: The big mistake is trying to trying to add the new covenant to the old.
1: Yes, they don't mix.
2: But I mean, it's not it's not the new covenant plus Jesus. It's just Jesus, and you got to let that old go, but things like tithes, how uh, long? <laughs> <laughs> Preachers
1: don't want to let tithing go, okay? They know the old covenant's gone, but, well, wait a minute, tithing, we got to hang on to that, okay? Uh, I've been toying the last couple of weeks with doing a message on tithing because it's such a big deal in the church, I thought, let's set the record straight here, but um, I'll I think next week I was going to be done with tongues but I'm going to do one more because I want to cover the gift of powers and that's what we're going to do next week we're going to talk about the gift of powers and so you might want to do a little research and see what you come up with I've never
2: heard of that the power Uh, it's one of the gifts
1: we read it today in 1 Corinthians powers powers. miracles okay some some translations call it miracles some call it powers the Greek word is dunamis power dynamite anybody else (laughs)
2: <laughs> all I know is I, I've told several people that uh, uh, I've changed so much and there's still all wrong with me. I just hope the Lord keeps changing me until I see everything like He does. And that's all he will one day. Yeah.
1: Amen. And See, that's the goal, people. We should always be learning. We should always be growing. We should always be changing. Amen. Everything I believe now, I have believed the opposite at one time. Everything.
2: <laughs> really. <laughs>
1: I mean, it's just like you know. So I think God did that well, for me because I'm hard-headed.
0: It, what do we believe now, honey? It, it,
1: yeah.
2: Except for salvation through
1: Christ. Well, I did. I did believe that salvation has been by, by Christ through grace. Um, but I will tell you, all these other side things, man. I was like always on the other side, and because God knows I'm a hardhead, so you know, he once he straightens me out, then I have more compassion for people who do hold the wrong thing.